Can you hear me? I can hear you, yeah. Yay, now I can hear you. (laughs) So nice to see you. Thank you so much for doing this. Welcome to Rethink Moments, the show that explores culturally significant ideas and events that in some way changed how we think and rethinks how these moments changed us, what went right, what went wrong, and what was learned. I'm Rachel Botsman. I don't have headphones in right now, uh, or or earbuds, Um, so let's get that, see if that is going to work or not. That's Amy Cuddy, social psychologist, best-selling author, and former professor at Harvard Business School. I've been waiting to have this conversation with Amy for literally a decade. And if I'm being totally honest with you, Rethink Moments is partly an excuse to make contact with her. And I'm sort of having this surreal moment because I feel like I know you I, and we've crossed paths. But... I know, it's so weird because such a, such a like, massive moment in our lives happened in the same like one hour period. So I want to start by um, offering you a free no-tech life hack. Um, and all it requires of you is this, that you change your posture for two minutes. But it's June 2012 in a packed auditorium in Edinburgh, Scotland. Dr. Amy Cuddy is about to deliver her power-posing manifesto, a TED Talk that would become a viral sensation. I'm there, too, scheduled to give a talk about my new ideas on trust, directly following Amy's speech. Right before I walked on stage, I remember the production manager whispering in my ear, Good luck following that. Oh, God. That's awful, because I remember watching your rehearsal and thinking, I cannot go in the same session as this woman because she is so together and I'm such a wreck. Today on Rethink Moments, how a 20-minute presentation transformed Amy Cuddy's life and career. There's all of this uncertainty around what, what's going to happen to it. Will it even be posted? And then if it's posted, how will people respond to it? What happens when, despite your best intentions, the world turns against you? How do you respond and get through it? Stay with us. use it the most are the ones with no resources and no technology and I can't watch it I, I don't watch mine at all ever and it was so painful I, I can hardly breathe while I'm speaking mm. I was breathing so shallowly and so quickly and I don't know if you know but the night before I was in the hospital in Edinburgh and it was my gallbladder but they couldn't do anything. They wanted to admit me for testing. I was in the hospital all day the day before. We got out really late at night because I was ready to pull the IVs out. I'm about to rip them out of my arm because I'm like, you don't understand it. This is like the Olympics of speaking. I can't miss this. Like, I have to get out so I can do this talk tomorrow. Do you remember the audience's response? Do you remember taking that in? It's funny because my husband, my now husband, was sitting like 
not far back. You can see him in so many clips because he's the one person who is not smiling at all, ever. And he has a camera around his neck. I don't think he took any pictures, but he is like frozen. He's so still. He was so nervous. And I was watching him and he didn't relax. So I was looking to him for cues. I did end up sort of finding some people in the audience who were really responding with their facial expressions. And that was reassuring. I think that I was nervous until the moment when I told the story about the student coming to my office and I was really trying to not cry. I remember that. During mm. the the rehearsal, I got choked up, but I thought I was going to be able to control that and then I ended up getting choked up. And was the exposure, the attention, the praise, the influence, the fact that you were trusted by so many people so quickly and the pressure of that. Now when you look back, can you sort of unpack that? That's funny That's that to ask it that way because I never thought about it that way. I loved that it connected with people. I was, you know, accepting hugs from strangers and totally comfortable with, with that. That didn't make me uncomfortable. I didn't feel uncomfortable feeling trusted by people within you know, six hours, it had gotten, I don't remember how, like a lot of views, but it wasn't just views. It was the flood of emails that I was getting from people from all over the world, all walks of life saying something like, I felt like you were telling my story. So there was some universal experience that I had tapped into. And I, I didn't know that, that that's what it was going to do. But I think at midnight that night, I got an email from a Latina college student at UCLA who watched the talk. She said, I was going to drop out of school at the end of this week because I felt like I didn't belong here. And then I, I watched your talk and I, I joked <laughs> up again. Like, she said, I, I realized that I am allowed to be here and I'm going to stick it out. I'm not going to drop out of school. And she didn't drop out of school. And, and, you know, three and a half years later, she wrote she'd graduated, gotten a great job. But that moment, it was sort of like I felt like you wrote that song for me. That's when I thought, oh, wow, this is going to reach a lot more people than I had expected. And then I wanted to hide in my room for a week. Amy knew that the greater the number of views, the greater the attention, the greater the chances things could start to go wrong, horribly wrong. I felt like I am now a tall poppy in academia and shit. And that's the thing about giving a TED talk. You don't, as there are a lot of young academics, junior academics who give TED talks. And you know, if they're viewed half a million times, that's okay. But if you see that it's gonna go beyond that, I thought, oh, they're going to come after me. That's what I thought. You're not supposed to be a tall poppy in academia. I just thought, they're going to hate me now. <laughs> I don't want to compare these experiences, but I remember being so afraid to join Oxford. I really felt like I didn't belong because I'm not a traditional academic. And I remember, this wasn't right after my TED talk, but being in the university and a friend who was a colleague had shared that some of the other faculty had said, you should never give Ted girl a desk. 
God. And I came home and I said to my husband, this is going to be so hard. Yeah. This is going to be so hard, not because of the quality of my teaching or because of my ideas, but because I'm already standing out. And I think this problem, and it can be academic and it can be an elite institution, but the fact that we don't even call it bullying, like I think the term used is like academic mobbing. There's no way anyone would have said to my male colleagues, hey, Ted boy. Oh, my gosh. Of course. I've been called Ted girl many times, too. Ted girl. That, that's it. That's the thing that defines you then. You're like, but I had done years and years of work, not just on that particular topic that I spoke about, and it become an expert in my, you know, my area. And same with you, right? So it's, but, but you are, you are boiled down to those 20 minutes. Mm. And you're right. Yeah. Ted, Ted girl, really? But yeah, I've talked to half a dozen TED speakers who were junior faculty members when they gave talks and had really horrible experiences as a result. As power posing became part of the mainstream vernacular, the academic mob began sharpening their knives. Some close colleagues moved to distance themselves from Amy's work. Other peers chose to publicly denounce and discredit her. And of course I wanted to die. I can't even, I can't even describe the devastation. I, 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 it's impossible. It's, it's, and also it's never over. The thing that always ran through my mind, and I always wondered, how is Amy coping with this, is that people weren't just attacking your competence. They were attacking your intentions. Right. And that's the deepest kind of hurt, right? Because that's questioning what your motive is. It's not yes. just saying you're incompetent or the research doesn't hold up. It's questioning who you are as a person. And I just wonder how you navigate that, how you actually cope with that attack on your your motives, who you are as a person. When you have a, a bit of a public profile, when you're high profile, and there are lies about you out there, they're never gone. You can never get them. You can never erase them completely. So they'll still pop up again. I, I was interviewing someone, a woman who amazing person, target of a large-scale bullying campaign in the military in the in the mid to late 90s. And her records were falsified. And, and they now know that the records were falsified. But it still comes up in some like foreign news article that I had poor performance reports. And she said, every time it comes up, and this is 25 years later, she said, it feels the same way. She said, so what I can say, Amy, is the pain doesn't get less intense, it just lasts less long. And I have to say, I, I, it, it feels the same way for me too. But the, the attack on my intentions and, you know, trustworthiness, you know, that to me is much, was much worse um, because, I mean, I know everybody says I'm a good person, but man, I'm, I'm a good person, mm. like, you know, a, a friend of mine in the field used to joke that 
he's a bit prickly and people, he said that people always thought he was kind of an asshole at conferences until they realized that he was friends with me. And then they were like, oh, well, you must be a nice person if you're friends with Amy. This is pre-TED talk. What changed? I didn't become a different person, but now I, I never, never thought that would happen to me. That was never my fear. My fear would have been being seen as incompetent. That was my, mm. you know, my insecurity. You know, I didn't ask to give a talk. You know how TED Talks work. I didn't ask to give a TED Talk. You don't get paid to give a TED Talk. There are so many misunderstandings about the way they work. But yeah. people were like trying to create this narrative where I had strategically done research that would be sexy enough to get me a TED Talk. It was so absurd. It was. It could not be further from the reality of how that happened. You know, when I was asked to give the talk, it's funny, I, I'm afraid to even say this because people will go, oh, that can't be true. It is true. I learned the week before what a TED Talk was because <laughs> what happened is I had given a talk at a small um, kind of tech conference. That was the first outside academia talk I had given. And it was live streamed and someone said, oh, I bet you'll get asked to give a TED Talk because I bet someone will see that. And I said, I, what, what, I don't know what a TED Talk is. And they gave me a really quick overview. And it was about a week later that, that I got the call to give a TED Talk. And so th the idea that I was strategic about that could not have been, it just couldn't have been further from the truth. In 2016, when the academic shaming was near its peak, Amy wrote something in the Harvard Business Review that stuck with me, as it so aptly described her own experience. She said, a warm, trustworthy person who is also strong elicits admiration, but only after you've established trust does your strength become a gift rather than a threat. Lots of research shows that our overall impressions of other people is made up of how we evaluate them on, on trustworthiness and strength or warmth and competence. People call them different things, but it's the, it's the, it ends up being the same characteristics. But they judge trustworthiness before strength, right? So if you meet a stranger, you are automatically, you may not be realizing that you are, but you are making evaluations of whether or not you can trust them. So is this person friend or foe? What are their intentions toward me? That's trustworthiness. And then the second one is, can they carry out those intentions? So if they're trustworthy and strong, that's good for you, right? Their intentions toward you are good and they're enabled to enact them. So then they're a potential ally. But if you evaluate them as untrustworthy, then their intentions toward you are potentially bad and their strength is then threatening hmm. because they're an enemy who can carry out their intentions. And if they're an enemy who can't carry out their intentions, then we just sort of dismiss and dehumanize them. So we, we judge trustworthiness before strength and trustworthiness accounts for more of the overall, the variance in that overall evaluation. So it's weighted more heavily as well. So we care much more about others' trustworthiness than we do about their strength. And the way we interpret their strength is very much influenced by whether or not we see them as trustworthy. Interesting. I tend to lean on the character and capability framework quite a bit. So yeah. capability being competence and reliability and character being integrity and empathy. One of the most popular questions I'm asked is, which is the most important trait? And 
I don't like that question because it depends on the situation and context. Right. But it has to be integrity because of the intentions piece. I've written a Rethink newsletter all about this idea of integrity and its connection to intentions and motives. If you'd like to learn more, there is a link in the description of this episode. More from Amy after this. I want to ask a question connected to the research you're doing now and the book that you're writing now. First of all, this book must be painful to write. So why are you writing it, Amy? I think it's excruciating. I'm not, I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to sugarcoat it at all. It is excruciating. <laughs> um, and that's why it's taking as long as it's taking. Because I'm go- also going through a, a you know, I, I, healing is a, not even quite the right word because I don't think that you you ever completely recover from, from this. Um, but I'm trying to heal and write this at the same time. I have this combination of having lived through it as a target and being a social psychologist who studies intergroup relations, interpersonal relations. How do we make judgments of each other? What are the actions that we, I mean, this is in a way, I, yes, I, 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 I'm not a primary researcher in the area of bullying, but I am a primary researcher in the area of impression, uh, impression formation and, and how we act on different impressions. So I'd like to offer a framework and understanding. You know, as I start to share pieces of this book with people, they go, oh my gosh, that's, that is what it is. That's exactly what it is. I had never thought of it that way, but yes, that's what happens. So by, by seeing the anatomy of how this happens, the stages, we're able to figure out where we can intervene as bystanders to not be by, just bystanders, but to, to actively participate in turning things around. Because there are so many moments when people could have stepped in and said no, <laughs> or just tiny little corrections or or actions could have stopped this for, for so many people. But people are afraid. They're afraid to step in because they don't understand it. They're afraid that they're gonna be putting a target on their backs. They are afraid of being kicked out of the group. Um, but I, I'm, I'm leaning on, on the belief that a large part of it really is not understanding it. And just by understanding it, people will be um, a bit more inclined to do something about it. Because here's, what, in the end, no one, no one, wants to be described in their eulogy as a really good bystander, like an mm. excellent passive bystander. No one, but who doesn't want to be described as brave, mm. right? As courageous, as as principled, um, as, you know, standing up for people. I think everyone wants to be described in that way. And it feels like not just frameworks, I'm a big believer that when language is missing, it's so hard to even know where to start the conversation. I think this is what I've observed around adult bullying. Even the fear of using that term is that it's missing a whole language that gives people the bravery, the confidence, even just the permission to identify it, to intervene and to help others. 
I, I absolutely agree. And I think that that's, I, I, I'm really hoping that this will make people feel more comfortable talking about it because we can talk not just about, I mean, we can, we, we, we can use um, um, more specific terms to talk about the stages. We don't have to be using the word bullying in every conversation. We can say, look, we're at this place where this person is being sort of um, uh, stigmatized and silenced. So, uh, you know, the next step is this. We don't have to necessarily say bullying in every conversation, but if we can talk about sort of where we are in that process using other language, I think it will be much easier. And also just to be to be more specific about what's happening. I hate the language of building trust. And it's everywhere. And I'd love your perspective on this. The reason why I hate this language is because if you talk about this idea of building trust, you assume that you, the receiver, so in a trust situation when you have a giver and then you have a receiver of trust, and the receiver is mm -hmm. saying, I want to build trust, you're assuming that you're in control. But the giver, whoever that may be, is the one with all the power. You can behave in ways that are trustworthy and people can still choose not to trust you. Right. So I think we need to shift our language. And, and this does sound like semantics, but I think it's really key from building trust where you assume that you're in control. And then, as you know, you have these moments where you discover that people don't trust you, even though that you believe you're trustworthy, to earning trust. Yes, and it really starts to reframe the dynamic of who has the control and the power in that situation. I love that, and I it it's funny because yeah, I I hate the language in in, in these discussions as well. I I kind of talk about it in a different way now. It, it's funny because earning trust. I feel like as a kid, we we heard that phrase a lot. Mm. I did at least. So how did then it become building trust? When you said it in the business context, it's building trust. Because again, you're giving the person more agency than they actually really have. Right? And you're making it much more individualistic. No, it's, it's, it's an interaction. It's a relationship. Of course, you don't just build trust. It's not a bunch of bricks that you lay out and now you have trust. Earning is such a better word for it. I've never thought of that distinction, but, you know, my kids are now 10 and about to turn 8, and I say this all the time to them. you got to earn my trust, or you got to earn my trust back, you know, when they lie about right. their homework or something rather, you know. And it is true, right? When do we drop that, even as teenagers, I think, so... I, I never thought about that. And I mean, until you, you said this just now. When does but that happen? But this is like business speak. It's yeah. business speak. In the same vein, why is it all leadership? Does everyone want to be a leader? Like, why do we assume that everyone in the class wants to be a leader? Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying that we don't want to be leaders of our own lives and, and you know, be able to take on responsibility. But I, I think that's kind of a funny sort of ego stroking approach, too, that we use in, in business education. See, will you join me on my earning trust crusade? And now I'm going to look at where oh, we drop that. Absolutely. <laughs> I am so in. I love this. You tell Brené Brown because she uses building trust 
all the time, right? And she influences <laughs> how people speak and how they behave. She's even got an episode called Building Trust. So. I, I've used it. I, I mean, I've used Building Trust, and I and and I really want to change my language around this. I'm super motivated. I love this. Looking back over the past decade, you've been on such an incredible journey. I'm interested in what you think has been your most powerful rethink moment. The, the like the bullying really got bad. It started it started even earlier than I realized. Looking back and f- like w- doing doing searches and finding what was happening on blogs even before I realized. So by the time it like hit me, it already had some momentum, and I I didn't realize that. But it peaked, you know, around like 2016, 17. and by twenty eighteen, I was exhausted. I was working nonstop. I had I feel like I had been working my whole adult life nonstop. Like really ridiculous mm-hmm. sort of what my as my Australian husband says like American hours, you know. <laughs> and so I was exhausted from working, but I was I was emotionally exhausted from the experience and and just like fighting back, fighting back and feeling like the you know the goalposts were moving all the time. And it was May of 2018, and we were planning, you know, to to take a, a vacation in the summer and talking about what to do. And my husband said, um, who is not, by the way, a deadhead, and I am a deadhead. So, which I, to your listeners means I, you know, I follow the band The Grateful Dead, now called Dead and Company. But I, you know, I. I they never play the same show twice. I've seen hundred, you know, more than a hundred shows. I used to do that and then stopped doing that. And my husband said in 2018, when I was exhausted, he goes, basically stop what you're doing. We're gonna go follow the dead. And so we rented like a truck out west and we we follow, you know, we did the full West Coast tour, which was I, I think that summer, I mean, including the the other shows we saw, you know, 15 shows or something. And it, I was just away from everything. And I reconnected with this community that, you know, I've found a great deal of like peace and, and love from. It's very non-hierarchical. They don't care what you do for work. Nobody ever says, what's your job ever? <laughs> like, in fact, if you say that, people are like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to walk away now. That's not what that space is about. And so I realized, I mean, it was an, an amazing reset. I was so rejuvenated. And I realized, I guess, that there are there are countless parallel worlds happening simultaneously. And you know what? Most of them don't care about what's happening in the one that you are so worried about. They don't care at all. They don't care who you are or what you're doing or what's happening to you. Not in a mean way. They're they're just happy to meet you where you are at that moment. And so that discovery, like to be able to jump back into that life and realize that Nobody cared what was happening in the other one, and not not in an unkind way. They just accepted me and met me where I was there in that world. Was super reassuring. So I, 
now coming back to the world where the bullying is happening, it stinks, but I also know that I can, I don't want to be forced out of this world, but if I choose to leave it and go do something different, I'll be okay. I, I can be seen for who I actually am. If you enjoyed this episode of Rethink Moments as much as I did, then please subscribe and leave us a review on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And I'd love for you to keep rethinking with me. You can do this in a few ways, by connecting with me on LinkedIn. Here you can join our community of rethinkers by subscribing to the Rethink Moments newsletter. You can also find me on Instagram and Twitter at Rachel Botsman. And you can email me with your ideas, questions, experiences and feedback on rachel at rethinkmoments.com. I'm Rachel Botsman. We're back next Monday with a new episode of Rethink Moments. See you then. Rethink Moments is truly a collective effort. The show is developed and written by me, Rachel Botsman, with Will Hain and Alex Sansom. Our Rethink Moments team includes our wonderful producers, Kat Davy and Carenza Metric, and Phoebe Adler-Ryan, our researcher. Editing, mixing, and additional scripting is by our friends at Rethink Audio, Matt Hill and Anushka Tate. Sound engineering by Nick Morbath at Evolution Studios, and our original theme music is composed by Ben Sansom. And thanks to Jesse Hempel and the team at LinkedIn for all their support.